The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This special episode comes to you from an instructional course presented at AUA 2023. For more information, including how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Independent educational grant support is provided by Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck & Co., Inc., and Pfizer, Inc. Okay, well, thanks for joining us on a uh, rainy Sunday afternoon. Um, uh, I'm Tom J. Ram. I'm a uh, urologic oncologist in Nashville uh, in a big, uh, a big private group. And um, our, uh, our course here is um, uh, kind of a different, a little bit of a different uh, uh, type of course where we're trying to help urologists uh, understand and kind of assimilate the, the uh, checkpoint inhibitors, um, the understanding of how to manage side effects, but also just kind of the understanding of the, the drugs, the indications um, into their own practice. Um, and so uh, I've got two uh, excellent faculty members with me who have a lot of experience with this topic. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll give you guys some practical tips on um, kind of what we've seen managing side effects of these drugs, when to give it, when not to give it, um, and, and kind of what you need to, to uh, carry this out uh, in a structured and a in a skilled manner. So, uh, like I said, I'm Tom. I'm a, uh, a urologic oncologist uh, in a big group in Nashville. I run our uh, uh, advanced cancer center where we give some of these advanced therapies. We have a lot of clinical trials, um, and we try to kind of find novel solutions for some of our patients. Um, and I'll let uh, our other panel members uh, introduce themselves. We'll start with Dr. Rini. I'm Brian Rini. I'm also in Nashville, but I'm a medical oncologist at Vanderbilt. Yeah, my name is Michael Johnson. Uh, I'm a urologist uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, my background's a little bit special in that uh, just last year I used to be in private practice. I was there for a couple of years. Uh, and so I have experience with uh, checkpoints both in the private practice uh, realm as well as academia. Um, okay. So um, with that, uh, I'm just going to j- real quick go over um, some of the uh, objectives and why we're here, and then uh, we'll get to the heart of it. So really the goal, we're, we're going to try to simplify this and make it um, you know, pretty structured in that we really have three objectives. Identify common and uncommon presentations clinically of immune-related adverse events. Um, to, to try and develop a pathway uh, or an understanding of how to successfully manage adverse events from checkpoint inhibitors. And then also uh, to develop some clinical infrastructure to prevent and prepare, uh, prepare patients, um, and also providers, uh, which is an important part of this, for immune-mediated adverse events. Um, so with that, the outline, and each of us are going to kind of tackle a separate topic here while intermingling cases, is an introduction to IRAEs and the pathophys, strategies for treatment, um, and then strategies for prevention. Um, so with that, um, Dr. Rini will come on up, and he is going to uh, talk the first section. There will be some audience response questions intermingled. Um, we can try and pause and, and wait for the responses, um, and then we'll, we'll go through those questions in detail. Um, so I have some cases and then some didactic slides intermingled. 
Um, 50-year-old man with kidney cancer has three doses of Ipinevo. As you know, Ipinevo is one of our standard frontline regimens. Calls with 10 episodes of loose, watery bowel movements. Uh, and so the question is, what is the next step? Tell the patient to take some Imodium, bring him in for some stool cultures, just tell the patient to stay hydrated, uh, prescribe steroids with or without an emergency room visit, or prescribe antibiotics. I think if I go, yeah. So otherwise healthy frontline metastatic patient, three doses of Ipinevo has sort of sudden onset of watery diarrhea. So yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think what we would do, it sort of depends on what day is it and what time of day, right? If it's the middle of a work day, we'd have that patient come in, probably set him up for some IV fluids. This, this sounds like immune-mediated colitis, right? This isn't, the patient only got immune therapy, right? So any toxicity is gonna to be immune-mediated by definition, but this isn't um, sort of subtle onset of a loose stool or two. This is sort of you know rapid onset and explosive, and that's sort of one of the characteristics of immune-mediated diarrhea. Um, and again, whether if it's late in the day, they may need an ER visit. If it's during the day, I would probably just see them and, and, and deal with it in clinic. Um, obviously, stay hydrated is not a wrong answer, but this sort of requires probably a little more, a next level of care for this patient. Antibiotics don't have a role. I don't usually get C. diff in cultures. I don't think it's wrong. It depends on the context. Of course, if the patient was on antibiotics, it wouldn't be wrong to do. But I would say I don't do that routinely for these patients. All right, so the common theme, and the way I describe it to patients is, we're giving you drugs to rev up your immune system to cause inflammation. We want that inflammation to be against the tumor cells. The side effects come when the inflammation is against normal cells. I think this is, yeah, animated here. So um, on the left um, side of the slide is, you know, relatively common ones, and on the right side are, are rare ones. But what I tell patients is any organ can become inflamed. And then I'll usually go down kind of that left side and say, but commonly it's your skin causing a rash, it's your gut causing diarrhea, and so on. Um, I don't but, I, but I do say any organ can become inflamed. And then you see the rare, one, rare ones in the myocarditis, which is one of the answers um, uh, on, the, on the question. But it's really any organ. Um, what's the mechanism? And again, on the left side is the text of, you know, that I just said, right, that it's really two sides of the same coin, right? It's, it's inflammation, it's T cells attacking antigens. They're normal self antigens in the case of toxicity, and they're tumor antigens uh, in the case of, of anti-tumor effect, right? And that schematic just sort of takes you through in various organs sort of, you know, uh, what happens. But I think it's relatively straightforward in terms of what's going on. Uh, this is similar. I'll skip that. This is a, an old slide. You can see the JCO reference from over 10 years ago. So this is in the early days of uh, PD-1 inhibition and CTLA-4 inhibition in melanoma. Um, and I like it because it gives you that timing, right? It's sort of another dimension as opposed to just a list of side effects. So there is a different kinetics. There are different kinetics to each of these uh, immune-mediated adverse events. So rash is almost always the first. You see that's the sort of light um, blue line. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, and, and usually in the, again, six to eight-week range. And again, remember, this is in the ipinevo, right? So this is dual immune therapy that's given for melanoma. It's given for kidney cancer and some other diseases. Then you get liver toxicity, diarrhea, and the endocrine toxicities tend to occur a little bit later. So pituitary dysfunction or hypophysitis, or I would lump in there thyroid dysfunction, adrenal dysfunction, pancreatic, right, any of the endocrine organs that can be affected by these, uh, by these agents. Some of these toxicities can be fatal if you look at... Um, uh, certainly, at least in the advanced setting, the patients that I see, you know, there is a small but defined number of patients who have fatal toxicities. I think the good news now is that, unlike 10 years ago, 
Um, any emergency room doctor has seen patients who have this, any primary care doc. So they, they're aware of this class of medicines. They're aware it's not chemotherapy. They're aware that these patients need you know, urgent intervention and, and often steroids. So that sort of initial education period, I think, is done, and there's general recognition of, of this class of medicines, right? And it's, it's again, not the same as, as other classes. Um, so then you can see just, I guess, in the, that sort of waterfall-type swimmer's plot on the right there, sort of the, the number of cases and then the fatality rate. And the one that sticks out is, is myocarditis, of course. Um, and, you know, pneumonitis I would put up there. In our patients with kidney cancer, with one kidney, nephritis obviously can have, you know, significant implications. So um, if you treat enough patients, you will see this. And it's really just a matter of um, being aware, right, and not, you know, being aware that this can occur and having a very, very low threshold to test patients or refer them to specialists. Brian, let me ask you a yeah. question. Um, what do you make of kind of the statement that I've heard before that, listen, in, in, in non-metastatic disease, and urologic disease specifically, you're treating healthier patients, less disease burden, um, and some of the data that was initially shown on, you know, how patients did on checkpoints from years ago in, you know, end-stage disease and pretreated disease may not be as relevant to this population. Is there any, does that hold any water? I don't know that I really agree with that. I mean, um, most of the data, and again, I see mostly kidney cancer, most of the data we have for immune therapy is in the frontline setting, right? It's our initial therapy. So these are generally pretty healthy patients, as you know, right? I mean, not always, but pretty healthy. Now, they're probably not as healthy as the adjuvant setting. I'm not aware of any data that um, severity of toxicity is related to disease burden, at least in the advanced setting, right? I mean, it kind of makes sense, but I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm not sure that I've seen anything along there. And, and just my experience, now, as you know, in the adjuvant setting, we're just giving single-agent pembrolizumab. In the advanced kidney cancer setting, we're giving multiple drugs. So it's, it is different. But I would say my anecdotal experience, and, and I think the numbers would bear this out, is that I don't really see a, a huge difference in toxicity. Yeah. Can I ask a practical yeah, question? Sure. So when you're counseling patients on IO therapy, you know, you're covering a lot of information here. There's a lot of data. How much do you actually, how much of this do you convey to the patient specifically? Are there things that you say, well, we're giving you this for kidney cancer, I'm, I'm really looking out for nephritis, or am I, no, are you I, saying, well, you know? I talk about, you know, I say, the, the line I said, we're causing inflammation, that's the mechanism. I said it can be any organ, but here are the common ones, and I give them four or five common ones. You know, we have handouts we can give them. Mostly what I say is, listen, if you have problems, you have to let us know. Like, you're not bothering us, that's our job. Message us during the day, call us, you know, get my fellow on call at night. I give him my email, I say, if it's nights, weekends, holidays, just email me. You know, I say, my line is, if, if I'm not sleeping or on a plane, I will answer you. Right, so I think you just have to give patients that permission that like you can get really sick with these. When I'm giving single agent Pembro in the adjuvant setting, I say, listen, eight out of 10 people do just fine with this therapy and it's mm -hmm. gonna be a relative non-event. Mm -hmm. But if you're in that one, out of t one or two out of 10, it could be a significant you know, life-altering, even a life-threatening event. So you don't wanna scare people, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but you wanna just you wanna give them permission that yeah, if, you, know, you can get really sick and you need to let us know because you know, early intervention is key, of course. But I don't, I don't go down the list and you know and if a patient had a you know a I don't know a pre-existing lung problem well then I'm probably not treating them you know if they had a reason to to, to highlight one of the more rare ones then they're probably in a category of patients that I wouldn't treat all right 50 uh didn't I, I think this one is three is this episodes. the same one was it Oh, Underline, it was underlined three episodes, so I don't know if that was... No, I think we're supposed to ask the question before and after. Oh. 
So just vote again. Sorry, the same patient who had three doses of Ipinevo. Time's up, Brian. You yeah. lost the game there. 100% <laughs> awesome. So, uh, so just to continue this case, patients treated with steroids with some improvement, but then relapses upon taper. And this is not uncommon at all, right? So whether you use IV or oral steroids is one of those, you know, art of medicine sort of things. Um, I tend to try to get away with oral. Um, but if a patient's sicker, then I'll bring them in, give them fluids, give them a dose of IV, and then send them out. Usually a milligram per kilogram is the starting dose. So somewhere in the 60 to 80 uh, milligrams of prednisone daily. And then there's no real rules around taper, right? It's just one of those, how's the patient doing? How sick are they? What's their comorbidities? You know, you, you want to, I try to taper a little more quickly to get down into the 20 milligrams a day, but then from there I'll go slower. Because what I found when I was giving these drugs years ago early on is that if you go too fast, people always relapse. Always, always, always. And then you end up starting over again and the patient's bummed out because they've got steroids, you know. Um, so I tend to try to get fairly quickly, and by that I mean call it over two to three weeks down to 20 milligrams a day, and then I'll take a good four to six weeks to try and get down um, to nothing potentially, but some patients can't get down to nothing. Some patients are going to be on five for the foreseeable future. So this question is really around what do you do if, if the steroids aren't working? So um, initially treated with steroids, some improvement, but then relapses upon taper. What's the next step? Let me just flick to the actual answer slide. So just increase the steroids, give them 100 milligrams of prednisone, add infliximab, uh, mycophenolate, MMF, uh, metronidazole, or get a, a fecal leukocytes test. So yeah, kind of a mix of answers here. I'll go through, I think the, the slides sort of covered this. Um, I think the, the point is really is that steroids are our first line of defense for everything, right, because they're sort of cheap and easy, but that there are other drugs you can give, you know, when patients become steroid refractory. I'm not sure this patient would quite qualify as steroid refractory, right? He's had sort of one attempt at steroids, so I probably would initially think about going back up on the steroids, but um, I have also learned over the years to have a very low threshold to introduce um, other agents like infliximab, which is very useful for this immune-mediated colitis. So real quick, Brian, can sure. you just, what is the, so, you know, for us, uh, urologist. There, there was already a lot of hesitation about steroids and steroid taper, and kind of, a lot of us have started to kind of get over that. But infliximab and mycophenolate are kind of a what in the world are you asking me to do now? <laughs> so, c can you just briefly talk about what the process is and how you follow those patients? How do we follow patients who so need another layer? So what's the process layer? for, for example, if you decided to give that patient infliximab, it's, it's an injection, an infusion, it's an infusion every yeah, it's two a, weeks, a, right? Or TNF-alpha inhibitor. So if, if we're in the anything beyond steroids, then we're in that, this case, the patient's going to see GI. They're going to think about getting scope. You know, this isn't just us sort of doing it off the cuff in the office. Steroid, sure, we're pretty comfortable. I don't necessarily refer all my colitis patients to get a scope. That's a question that comes up. It's never... It's never wrong to scope these patients and get a biopsy to make sure you know that that's what this is, but usually the clinical scenario is so typical that I don't necessarily feel the need mm -hmm. to do that. Uh, again, it's one of those things where it's not wrong to do, but we don't commonly do it. Um, but if we're getting into the steroid refractory or talking about some of these other agents, then even myself who gives these drugs all day every day is pulling in other specialists. I think that's probably the best take home is that 
Um, you know, there are hopefully, you, you know, what, if you're going to start giving these drugs, you need the cell phone numbers of some specialists, mm -hmm. a GI doc, mm -hmm. a dermatologist, uh, a hepatologist for liver function. You know, you need ready access and contact to some people who have that organ-specific expertise um, for help, right? And, and, and that's perfectly fine. That's, that's you know, to be encouraged. Um, this is just sort of describing immune-mediated colitis. We've talked about this a lot. Um, IPI is... You know, uh, PD-1 inhibitors are generally well tolerated as single agents. You put IPI in there, and, and all bets are off, right? The combination in IPI by itself is a very toxic um, drug, and that that you know at least doubles the patient's chance of immune-mediated toxicity. Uh, and you could, you've read the other bullet points there, and, and you could see that sort of nasty colitis. Um, just some other tidbits about immune-mediated colitis. Fortunately, perforation is rare. NSAIDs are a risk factor. Um, and it just, grade, G2 is grade two or grade three, um, and you see the definitions in parentheses there. And this is, this is an area in medical oncology where we say, gee, you know, at a patient on ipinevo and they got three doses and they had grade three colitis, do I give them that fourth dose or not? And I think, again, this is where my thinking has evolved. At first, I was trying to push everybody to get four doses, and now I don't do that at all. <laughs> if somebody has grade three of a serious toxicity, you know, a serious organ toxicity, not like thyroid or something, then I'm probably done. That, that patient's probably done with IPI. And there's n absolutely nothing magical about four doses of IPI. That's how it was given in melanoma, and that's how we do it for everybody, of course. That's not going to be appropriate for everybody. I mentioned about endoscopy, you know, um, and then yeah, the salvage, some salvage agents. And we have Doug Johnson, and actually I should have given Doug credit because all these slides I borrowed from him. Doug is a melanoma doc and has given a ton of these agents and very involved. And we're also starting to do trials of novel um, drugs to treat immune-mediated toxicity. So there are a number of compounds out there in the clinical, in the development phase uh, to treat this. All right, let's go on to the second case. So uh, resected bladder cancer uh, on adjuvant nivolumab and has sort of a faint itchy rash on arms after five doses, nivolumab's uh, given every four weeks, so we're a few months into this. And let me just switch to the where you can vote. So faint itchy rash in the arms, um, given milligram per kilogram of prednisone, itraconazole, antifungal, just warm compresses, hydrocortisone 1% cream, or do a skin biopsy? It's a pretty good question. I like this one. So half and half. Uh, for high-dose prednisone and hydrocortisone. I would almost always start with hydrocortisone cream, you know, in patients. I mean, a milligram per kilogram of prednisone is no fun. Who's been on prednisone in the audience? I had poison oak once, and I was on, like, 40 milligrams. It, it was awful. Like, I'm never doing that again. It was awful. <laughs> that, now we're talking about 60 or 80. So I probably wouldn't for just this, you know, not that much surface area. It's faint. The patient, sometimes the patients don't even mention it, you know. And you almost have to pull it out of them because they're sitting, sitting there in your office doing this. Um, so I think I would usually start with just hydrocortisone cream. And again, skin biopsy, same really as, as with colitis. I don't think it's mandatory. I think it's, it's not wrong to do, but I don't know, in your centers, getting somebody into dermatology in Vanderbilt, I mean, my, you know, I'll be retired by the time they get that <laughs> skin biopsy. So. so you mentioned something interesting, and I think it's something we talk about in our urology um, meetings on this, is you almost have to pull it out of them. It, it kind of, to me, it makes me think, the thing I worry about is sleeping on a mild or a minor side effect, right, and, and letting it progress. 
what is your, do you have a formal intake form? Do you have an MA or do you have someone say, hey, you're on, you're on IO therapy, fill this out before the doctor sees you so he can look at it. Do you have any sort of process in place? Because again, I, the case you just presented, I worry about, ah, oh, the patient doesn't say anything. And then God forbid, Stevens Johnson shows up and then, you know, something, something yeah, weird like that happens. We don't have an IO specific intake. We obviously have intake forms like everybody does and they go online and you see the list. I think that's, you know, probably less useful, those intake okay. forms, to be yeah. honest. So but, but we, we don't have one specifically, but because we give so much of this therapy, every single person that touches the patient, so to speak, is going to be aware of it. Mm -hmm. And very often I'll get, an, you know, the, the rooming nurse will, MA will come and say, oh, you know, we'll tell me about stuff that they sort of gathered over the, you know, their interaction with the patient. Okay. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say that's maybe somewhat related is, you know, I'll have my clinical nurse call that patient in a week or something. You know, I'll, I'll very commonly say, hey, why don't you call Mr. So-and-so in a week and just check in and stuff. So it's kind of puts the burden on us and not just the patient. As yep. you know, some are very readily, they'll message us in our system and it's easy and it's great. And other people, again, they just don't want to bother us. And so they don't message until it's too late. So depending on what side effect and the <clears throat> severity, we, we sort of have this sort of follow-up built in. Um, so let's take this case a little further. So let's say the rash worsens, patient comes back in, call it in two weeks, um, two, two to four weeks, and so now it's you know, more of a diffuse, diffuse rash and it's really bothering the patient and keeping them up at night. Let me just go to the voting slide. So now would you give systemic steroids or, or the other things? Skin biopsy. If you could find a dermatologist friend, you're gonna be. Complete rash excision. So yeah, I think I would give, um, I would probably give prednisone. Sometimes, you know, when you're making these questions, there's, you can't put every single thing you might do. I might not give a milligram per kilogram. I think it kind of, you know, again, that's a lot. So sometimes I'll try to, and I've been burned by this, so maybe I'm not advocating for it. I'll be like, let's just give you 20 milligrams of prednisone. You know, let's give you 20 for five days and see what happens and try to get away with less than the full guns. Not for colitis, not for the serious stuff but for rash where you can see it and you know if it worsens the patient's going to know I don't you know I don't generally view that as life threatening so I'll try to I'll try a middle call it half of a milligram per kilogram sometimes it works great and then at other times it doesn't work and my APPs yell at me like why did you give that patient low dose steroids you know so I, I don't know I've never I don't know that there's any studies on that but again it's one of those sort of art of medicine things where you're you're trying to treat it but you're not trying to over treat it of course so sure <clears throat> um, I probably wouldn't. I probably would just, if it's just five days, I'd probably just stop and see. You know, again, that's where my nurse would call, hey, how you doing? And if they're fine, just stop and see what happens. If they're on anything longer than a week, then I would taper. You know, I might go down to 10 a day for a while and five a day or something like that. Again, I just kind of make up the taper. And Brian, is your decision to put them on steroids based on the severity of their symptoms or the total surface area? That's Both. Yeah, both. Yeah, I, I think probably more so the severity than the surface area, you know, because I'm not calculating the surface yep. area, right? I'm just kind of eyeballing it. So, but those tend to go together. Yep. They yep. tend to go together. But if I think I ha if I had to answer one, I'd say severity. Okay, sorry. All right. So this now this is Tom's nightmare. This now ha <laughs> becomes blistering, or, or they have mucosal ulcers, etc. Um, so now, what would you do as the next step? Yeah. I think I, I think I see where this is going. 
and again, I think probably these answers, I could have flushed them out a little more now that I'm standing here. So you're certainly going to give this patient steroids, potentially IV steroids. This is where you're absolutely getting dermatology involved and like, no, this patient can't have an appointment in four months. That's not going to work, right? This is where you're getting on the phone with your colleague and saying, I need you to see this patient. Definitely you would do a biopsy. You know, the dermatologist would do a biopsy, um, you know, and then think about management strategies for the, from there, which would be a re-increase of prednisone or maybe some of those other agents, you know, that we talked about in fliximab. It tend, you know, I'm not sure that I've experienced this. Uh, I don't give a ton of ipinevo. I tend to give IOTKI in kidney cancer, but you know, I don't have a ton of personal experience with the rash becoming this bad rash. Absolutely, many, many patients, but this severity of rashes is, is much less common. All right, just a couple. Um, again, it is most common. It, it appears early. It's sort of this, you know, lacy reticular rash, usually generally responsive to topical steroids. And I didn't mention it's like symptomatic other you know, uh, medications, just Benadryl and just Adoraxin, and things like that, and then systemic steroids if it becomes more severe. All right, uh, next case. I don't remember how many I have. But I think this is the last one. This last one, okay. So 58-year-old man with BCG refractory non-muscle invasive bladder cancer uh, who get two doses of Pembro, uh, comes to clinic for dose three, um, and ha now has transaminitis with uh, ALTAST in the 500s. They were, of course, normal at baseline. So what is the most appropriate treatment? Steroids and monitor, liver ultrasound, hepatitis, check Tylenol level, plasmapheresis, or mycophenolate? All over the map on these answers. <laughs> so patients clinically well, you know, they're not sick, but they're, you know, obviously you get labs before uh, you would administer the, the Pembro in this case, and they come back in the 500s. Billy Rubin's normal, probably should have said that. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think I would just give steroids. I would definitely hold their dose, maybe to state the obvious, um, you know, and and monitor closely. And I've had, um, I've given, we've given a fair amount of Pembro in this setting when it was approved. You know, our urologist sent us a lot of these patients, and if there's not a trial, we're we're giving a fair amount of this. Um, and I will say, I've seen more transaminitis in this setting than I've seen in other settings. And I don't. That's again just my collection of anecdotes. So I'm not sure. That it's unique to this setting. I know it's not unique to this setting, but I've, I've seen a higher incidence. In MIBC? In, yeah. What, what's in this setting? Okay. Yeah, I've had a few patients who were on steroids for months. It took us months to get them off steroids. Yeah. Again, just anecdotes, so take it for what it's worth. A again, with a normal bilirubin in this clinical setting, I don't think you have to s necessarily send this patient to hepatology and sort of go down that route. Again, never wrong to do, but you, you, you're not going to be able to do that on the spot anyway. Um, C and D. No, and then MMF, you, you certainly can use mycophenolate for steroid refractory transaminitis. It's quite effective, and I've learned to use it much earlier. But again, at that point, you're getting hepatology and other specialists involved, for sure. In your experience with these, with uh, transaminitis, it's a rapid onset? It's probably, the median's probably in the 6, 8, 10 weeks, yeah. I think. So if that's rapid, it's, you know, yeah. within the first few doses. Yeah, and is it... One dose, it's normal. The next dose, it's 500. Or do you ever see it where it goes normal and then slightly Both. elevated? And then it's, you know, keeps going up. And you Both. And what the really hard decision is when it's like, you know, five points above normal, right? One's normal and the AST is, and you're like, well. And the patient's like, well, I had a cocktail party last week. You know what I mean? And you're exactly. like, ah, I don't know, you know. So that's, this is easier decision making, yeah. right? Yeah. Clearly abnormal. You're going to hold drug. You're going to give steroids. You will sometimes get those. Or somebody who has, you know, Gilbert's disease and has a high baseline bilirubin or has some, you know, NASH and has a 
some mild transaminitis, mm -hmm. you know, that those real world cases, and, and that makes it much more tricky for decision making. Your patients are a lot more fun than my patients. What's so, that? Sounds like your patients are a lot more fun than my patients. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, same patient. You give this patient um, steroids, there's improvement. You're trying to taper it again, as we've talked about before. Um, and then as, as you get down, let's say, to 20 milligrams a day just to make up a dose, now the transaminases go back up. You've been holding pembrolizumab the whole time. All right, so next step, same answers, I think. But And all of these, again, I don't think there's one right answer, because as you see, a lot of these are, gee, do I just go back up on steroids and try it again and go slowly? You know, do I bring in another agent and, you know, pull the switch to get hepatology in this case involved? And I, you know, even doing this a lot, I, I can see where, you know, it kind of just depends, right? You know, how sick is the patient? We all have that sense sitting in front of patients. Like, when fellows come back and present to me, one of the first questions in a case like this, I'm like, are they sick? Do they look sick? Like, are you worried about them? Like, you know, or, oh, no, they look fine. And, you know, th those are different types of patients. So, um, and I think this is what we would do. We would go back up on the steroids and then just start a super slow taper. And again, I've had this exact scenario in this setting. Not wrong to get hepatology involved. Um, I've, as I mentioned, I've learned to, to use MMF a lot earlier. I never had any experience with the medicine. It's particularly effective for transaminitis. You said PO versus IV steroids is kind of dealer's choice. Is it, what does that look like, you know, in the real world? I mean, are you saying, okay, well, we're doing, we've done PO for a while. Maybe we should give it a trial of IV before we go to these other agents. Yeah. Is there a benefit of IV steroids higher dose? Uh, if you've already, if you're already doing one or I one think, and a half mix per cake? I mean, you can get higher doses, and if there's any concern about absorption, like in the case of colitis, colitis. they might not be absorbing. Um, so, you know, and again, it's kind of just depends on, and, and sometimes you just, you want to make sure the patient gets the steroid in. Maybe they're a little less reliable. So like, you know what, we're going to have you come back three days in a row to clinic. We're going to give you fluids. We're going to give you IV steroids. You know, we've done that a little bit too. Not sick enough to be admitted. You're not quite there, but mm -hmm. I'm a little nervous for outpatient management. And that's kind of where we've used it. So what dose can you give? Like a gram of solumedrol. Yeah. So we give like, so you can give in higher doses, right? So that's sort of another escalation of, of steroid intensity, so to speak. Yeah. At your institution, when you do get hepatology involved, do they ever end up doing anything? <laughs> Wait, right upper quadrant. Leave them in the room. Yeah, <laughs> that's a loaded. Do they get question. a liver ultrasound? And yeah, they'll usually you know biopsy. do the laundry list of you know ceruloplasmin level <laughs> and all that stuff that I've for, long since forgotten mm -hmm. about. Um, you know, Most generally, and I you know I'm never it's it's never wrong. Do we exactly. find anything? Exactly. Yeah, almost never. Yeah, yeah. almost never. It's more um, just to get them on board in case yeah. something goes. But it's yeah. Off, let's off the let's rails. make sure this patient didn't have hepatitis yeah. that was sure. reactivated. Let's make sure you know those yep. rare but but things that certainly happen. Um, and, and again, then they're on board, right? Then yep. they're engaged and their yep. nurses are engaged. You know what I mean? That, that yep. team is engaged in case this person does get much yep. sicker. I've just never seen that the hepatology service actually do anything <laughs> to involve it. And so I don't know if it institutionally it varied. And it's also what's really helpful is if you have not just a, a group of people who mm -hmm. might, you might refer to, but there's one person who has an interest, right? an academic interest yeah. in immune-mediated yeah. hepatitis. Mm -hmm. That's great. I agree. Because then they're like, yeah, here's my cell phone. I'll see any patient anytime, right? That's gold. Okay. We don't, even at our center, I don't have that for, for Do you have that cell phone organ. number available? Yeah. <laughs> great. I'm not, I'm not giving it to yeah. you, Tom, for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, in all our systems, we have different barriers, right? I mean, so that is the, it's, yeah, it's not even implied, it's stated that's the challenge. Yeah, and that's when it's not, I'm not just like putting in a referral and letting it go into the ether and hoping that it happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting somebody on the phone, whoever I can find or the fellow on call, you know what I mean? And really sort of chasing them down. So that's, that's just knowing your system and maybe just putting in the referral works. I don't know, sometimes it does. And if it's non-urgent, great, then I'm not worried about it. You know, I and, I, and I think Mike will talk a little bit about this, but the multi-do component that Brian alluded to, uh, for medical oncologists, it's important. For urologists, it's critical if you're going to do this. Um, and especially in the community, like you said, I've got three people on speed dial, endocrinologists, um, GIs, and, and it's a, hey, I need you to see this person tomorrow kind of thing. Um, here's a number. Can you call the patient tonight? Um, but especially if you're kind of in community practice, um, you know, we've talked about this, what multi-D looks like is different in different institutions, but for me, multi-D is having those three people on my starred list on my phone that, that I communicate with very frequently. Yeah, I agree. Um, so just some bullet points about this. Obviously, it's lab-based. Consider other causes like we talked about, grade two, grade three, you see the definitions, which are, you know, somewhat arbitrary, right? It's three times, it's 10 times, you know, um, in terms of the grading. Um, and then again, whether to hold therapy and then resume versus give more therapy, you know, it depends on the clinical setting, right? I mean, I have a, we were talking before, I have a much lower threshold to stop therapy in an adjuvant renal setting, right? Where the benefit risk is very different than in an advanced setting when a patient, you know, needs therapy. Um, in this setting, in the non-muscle invasive setting, I don't, you know, it's kind of in between. And how many doses did they get? And maybe we should just do the cysto early and see if they've responded, you know, so, it, the, the decision to, to resume therapy is a very personalized one. Not only your experience, but what's going on with the patient, what's the disease, what's the benefit risk of this immune therapy in this setting, et cetera. Um, I think I have this a couple. Last, this is your last Is this my last slide? Yeah. Okay. So um, a lot of times patients say, hey, doc, I don't want to go on steroids because that'll make the immune therapy work less well. And this is just one of many data sets. This is from Memorial, I think. Yeah, Memorial. Um, and mo much of this data is in the melanoma world, as you can imagine. And if you just look at that bottom bullet in the box on the left, how there's really no difference in, in time to treatment failure or survival. So you don't want patients on high doses of steroids before you start treatment. There are some data that it could reduce the efficacy. But once they're on treatment, they need steroids. They need steroids. But I will occasionally get a patient, you know, a, a little more sophisticated patient usually, and they've been on the Internet somewhere and said, well, steroids make immune therapy work less well. But I think you can reassure them that that's not the case. Any thoughts? There's similar data on antibiotics during um, uh, checkpoint inhibitors. In our population, obviously, we have a lot of patients with urinary tract infections, BCG-related infections, dirty urines. Um, and there's some data that, you know, there's some microbiome kind of yep. alterations um, that may change the efficacy. Um, any comments to the urologic kind of provider on try to minimize antibiotics? Does it matter? Yeah, I think it might matter. I don't have a slide on those data, but, you know, I think there's been studies of antibiotics. I think it's either within 14 or 30 days of the start of immune therapy, much like the steroid studies. And as Tom alluded to, the microbiome, which is a whole fascinating topic in and of itself, is clearly influences response to immune therapy, and antibiotics can change that environment. Uh, that's the, the mechanism of how they might be um, adverse in this, in this circumstance. So I think it's sort of try to avoid, if at all possible, or maybe try to delay the immune therapy depending on the clinical scenario, but it's sometimes you don't have a choice, right? Obviously, you want to treat infection as appropriate. 
in an adjuvant setting, they can often wait a little bit to start, right? I mean, they, mm -hmm. they can wait, you know, um, depending on the timing. So um, I think that understanding of that, of the microbiome and, and what to do in that circumstance is still developing. Great. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> okay. So um, that was great. And that was, I think, a really good kind of scaffold for a lot of this. And I think one thing I kind of got out of that is that there is, as many times as we want to put things into structure and boxes and, hey, give me a guideline, there's an art of medicine thing to a lot of this. Um, but, but certainly, you know, we all have to know the toolbox and, and what's available. So I think we'll talk a little bit about strategies for treating uh, IRAEs and, and kind of through a urologic lens as someone who obviously is somewhat new to this. But uh, in our practice, we've been giving this for several years. Uh, we had a lot of protocol-based trials with this um, that we started five, six years ago. And we've, I think we've learned a lot as a urological community. So uh, my AR question is, is 67-year-old female and adjuvant Pembro after a nephrectomy presents for initiation of their second therapy, um, mild skin reaction likely to, due to immunotherapy. So pardon the overlap a little bit, but I think now you guys should be pros. So what's the, what's the appropriate management? Discontinue Pembro and start steroids, continue Pembro uh, and topical cream, continue Pembro and infliximab, or switch from Pembro to ertafitinib, which really makes no sense with <laughs> renal cell carcinoma. So. Um, so I think we, we, we kind of hinted on this. It, it appears to be a mild uh, skin reaction. Um, but it was interesting, I think, what, what Dr. Rini said about you just kind of have a different perception of adverse events in the adjuvant setting, um, meaning that they're, you know, theoretically NED, they don't have active disease, you're giving them therapy to try and prevent recurrence as opposed to try to treat active disease. Um, I think that's an important concept. So this is kind of my, um, you know, my slide about adverse events for two urologists. Um, we've done, uh, in, in, in kind of large group meetings and settings, we've done surveys on what would prevent you or what is the thing that's preventing you from considering giving this? And by far, every single meeting, it's concern about the adverse events. And, and I think it's very reasonable, all things considered. Just to kind of put it in perspective, um, for high-grade adverse events, and there's not a, a source or a citation on this, so I apologize, but this is kind of, you know, um, uh, amalgamated data for, uh, across a, a, a lot of different sources. For high-grade effects, a lot of us are, are familiar with oral oncolytics for prostate cancer. A lot of our centers are giving these drugs. You're looking at about a 5% rate of, of clavian-3 or higher adverse events. And, and I think for most of us, that's a comfort zone. We're familiar with these drugs. We give these very frequently, and we feel pretty good that, that we can manage these side effects because, frankly, patients do really well on them, right? Uh, sometimes you can dose-reduce. Sometimes you can um, hold them. But it is quite rare um, as an advanced prostate uh, uh, cancer provider to have to switch gears, discontinue, or God forbid, admit someone to the hospital. So with that, you know, kind of in, in hindsight, you know, IO is about a 20%, you know, kind of all comers, clavian three or higher in, in the kind of in the urologic literature. And then chemotherapy is, is about 40%. So we kind of look at the you know, chemo as being an extreme and, and kind of if you look at oral oncolytics as being, you know, what we're familiar with, then you can put IO somewhere in the middle. Um, it's, what's tricky is it's a challenging adverse event profile that has somewhat unpredictable onset duration and inciting factors. You can have a perfectly healthy person that really has no toxicity that develops something significant. You can have someone, um, I have some patients in their 80s who I've been, I was 
you know, somewhat reluctant to put on checkpoints uh, for localized disease or maybe on a protocol, and, and they've done really well. Um, but I think, and, and Dr. Johnson will talk about this, is the champion physician and the team uh, really needs to become fluent in this language, if you will, of how to identify side effects um, and how to triage them effectively and, and trying to get patients early treatment um, and prevention, uh, I think goes a long way. So big picture, the way I look at it, myotoxicity, we've kind of discussed this, but kind of this question of is this affecting your 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 you know your daily life. So someone comes in with a really dry cough that's just <coughs> kind of nagging a little bit here and there. It's kind of grade one by definition, not really affecting activity you know their their daily activities. But if someone says, well, gosh, I'm coughing, you know, you know, in huge spurts, and you know, you know, this is really bothering me. You can hear them coughing on the phone. That's kind of a different different situation. But but really, most of the side effects. Um, and it's not 90%, but it's probably 50 to 60% are going, are going to be low grade. Um, and symptomatic treatment, either hydrocortisone or supportive treatment, um, with potentially skipping a dose or two, tends to be uh, the right answer. Um, and then, as we talked about, you get into your moderate tox and your severe tox. And, and I think that's what, where we have to kind of understand and we have to kind of prepare ourselves um, that these can happen. Um, you will have to give steroids if you administer this yourself. Absolutely, you will have to do that. Um, and if that's something that you don't feel comfortable doing or you don't want to do, then you shouldn't be giving these treatments, period. And then severe toxicity, it should be discussed with the patient that it's rare, but it's possible. It's very important that you call us if something severe is going on. Um, and it's very important you tell your healthcare provider, whoever sees you, that you're on these treatments because obviously you're going to manage that a little bit different. So um, kind of illustrated in a case, 66-year-old female on a clinical trial for muscle invasive bladder cancer who was cisplatin eligible. She received Pembro alone prior to her cystectomy. Um, so her starting creatinine is 1.67, hence the cisplatin ineligible. Um, there was mild hydronephrosis on the left side. Um, we see this obviously quite a bit in our uh, muscle invasive population, patients who are probably pathologic stage three uh, with hydronephrosis. Uh, after her second infusion, she began to have lower extremity edema and excess fatigue. Um, her creatinine was up to 2.4. She was instructed to hydrate, infusions were held. Um, a repeat check one week later, her creatinine was 3.24, and she really hadn't improved. Um, so as a urologist, you know, we we're, we're have a limited uh, kind of toolbox of, oh, gosh, this must be surgical. So um, we performed a retrograde pilogram, um, and there was some left hydronephrosis, and a stent was placed. Um, and so the thought is, as well, if we can decompress the kidney, hopefully that'll bring her creatinine down. Um, and uh, kind of at the same time that all this was going on, I was like, well, you know, th this shouldn't be happening. Your creatinine shouldn't be rising with this mild degree of hydronephrosis. So I, I started prednisone, um, and a nephrology referral was made. Um, after one week, her repeat creatinine was 2.6. And kind of in hindsight, I was like, well, now I don't know if it's the stent or the steroids that are making this difference, but I'm pretty sure um, it's the steroids. Um, we held the infusion. Uh, her steroids were continued, and her creatinine normalized after six weeks of, of steroids in the taper. And, and I think this was certainly immune-mediated because, again, she didn't have this degree of creatinine elevation with, you know, kind of chronic hydronephrosis. So she was removed from the trial and underwent a, a cystectomy. And so I think nephritis is an important one for us because 
There's a lot of confounders as urologists. You're, you're dealing with patients that may have hydronephrosis, potentially bad renal units. Um, they have a lot, you know, nephrotoxins um, that, that could play a role. Um, it's somewhat rare, but I think we'll see it more in, in, in our population. Um, if you do a biopsy, you'll see an acute interstitial nephritis. Uh, most of the time, biopsy is not needed, and I think it's probably pretty rare to have to do this. Um, Majority of patients, you're going to start seeing this somewhat substantial rise in the creatinine. I, um, you know, it's, it, it tends to move up fairly quickly, and so um, I don't know that he's saying, okay, we'll hydrate, we'll see in six weeks is the right answer. I think you want to keep a close eye on, on this. Um, and then again, as urologists, I think common things are common when it comes to elevated creatinine, so you have to image the upper tracts, you have to make sure that they're not dilated, you have to try and stent them or divert them if, if they are to see if that will help. Um, sterile pyuria is something you can see. Um, two migs for KIG um, is advised with a longer taper and kind of there's this notion of rebound kidney injury. I, I guess it, any questions, any, any comments from the panel on two migs per KIG, that seems like a high dose. Um, yeah. I, I haven't done that high for nephritis, and I'm not aware that it's different than the other one. So I generally, you know, same, start with around a milligram per kilogram. This is one that scares me, yeah, right? Because, again, in the adjuvant setting, renal, you obviously have one kidney in other settings. I don't know. I, as I mentioned from up there, I have a very low threshold. Any sort of creatinine bump, unless there's a, a, another cause that's easily fixed, is usually the end, yeah. you know, the end of the immune therapy. Yeah, I agree. I would... One milligram per kilogram sounds reasonable to me. And now that you tell me more about, you know, this, <laughs> your, your hesitations, I might, I might have a lower threshold to uh, stop it in the adjuvant setting as well. It's an interesting space. I mean, if this becomes approved as in the new adjuvant space for bladder, I mean, would that change the way you approach, you know, up, uh, uh, that, that clinical question is, okay, well, you're trying to get them through three or four cycles of, you know, they're cis-ineligible. Or yeah. would you kind of say, well, let's just forget this, get a cystectomy, and then we'll deal with it on the back end? I probably would, like the latter, just, okay. just sitting here. I think it depends how those, obviously we don't know how those data sets are going to turn out and what standard and all that, but I, I think it's going to evolve a lot. And I, again, the clinical setting and what you're trying to achieve and the benefit risk is everything. Um, so general uh, toxicity management, I have a couple of kind of uh, protocol slides basically from ASCO and uh, some of the governing bodies that have had, uh, that have put out some literature on this. And, and I think this is, again, good for kind of a, a foundation, but I think as we talked about, you know, not all hard and fast, but steroids are the cornerstone um, for these adverse events. Um, you know, mild reactions can be treated with symptomatic supportive things like topical steroids. Um, and then, uh, like Dr. Rina mentioned, oral is preferred. IV may be used when absorption is compromised. And then in moderate cases, grade two, um, you've got to think about kind of holding the drug um, and then adding steroids. And then severe cases, um, you know, tend to be steroids. And, and then there's, you know, these other options, mycophenolate and infliximab. Um, tend to start with steroids first and, and then maybe progress to these. Chris, make a quick yeah. comment, Tom. As mentioned, there are a number of societies that have these guidelines. ESMO, ASCO, SITSI, probably other ones I'm forgetting. Um, I would get a copy, print it out, put it in your clinic. I have an electronic copy on my computer laptop. It's just a nice guide. and They're only guidelines, right? So one grade three, you might treat like a grade two or vice versa, but, but at least put you in the ballpark if you're not as familiar, and I, I, I still use it, so. I like the... ASCO guidelines. Do you have a preferred one that you? I don't. I don't 
No, I don't have a preferred There's an one. app, isn't there? Isn't there an ASCO app that has it on your phone? Uh, I, I don't know. I have I'm a copy sure. of the PDF like readily available to me. I have times. one that you can, and <clears throat> I'll find it in a second, but you can search diarrhea and it just gives you the, yeah. it gives you the algorithm. Um, so kind of leading in ASCO guidelines statements, I kind of pulled out a couple that I think are important just for a broad uh, understanding of this. High level of suspicion that new symptoms are treatment related. So <clears throat> what I would say is, is, you know, I tell patients anything new that pops up. So forget the, uh, I have had an old cough for three years and then we started this and now, you know, that's there. Anything new that starts with treatment it, to me is treatment related and we'll, we'll figure it out, right? So call me and tell me. Um, you don't need to discontinue for, for small, you know, grade one toxicities. And I think, again, <clears throat> a lot of urologists and my discussions with them is, is, well, they get really, really nervous about some of these early toxicities, and then they hold patients off for, for a long time. And, and obviously, it's good to be cautious, but, but for some of these minor toxicities, you can certainly continue um, treatment while, while monitoring these. Um, but then, you know, when they get up to grade two and grade three, obviously that's when you need to be uh, uh, prompt in, in acting and, and, and your surveillance. And like has already been said, it's important to have a team-based approach. We have a mid-level um, uh, and, and a nurse practitioner, our fusion nurse and a nurse practitioner who are uh, communicating with the patient. We do virtual visits in between infusions um, to go through the list of questions, anything new going on. And then it's also, that's also an opportunity for us to kind of say, okay, well, your scan is going to be on this date, your cysto is going to be on this date. So it's kind of good to be organized in this whole process, um, uh, you know, and, and you'll, you'll pick up some small things that will require further attention. Um, and then this concept of re-challenging, I'm curious to get, um, Dr. Rini, your opinion on re-challenging. Um, what is your absolute no, I will not re-challenge, or is it kind of one of those risk-benefit, you've got active disease, I'm going to try yeah, and I mean, push it's, it's, you know, clinical scenario and risk-benefit, again, in the advanced kidney cancer setting, we're re-challenging all the time, yeah. say, a bad disease. In the adjuvant setting, where the benefit, you know, you're by definition treating some patients who don't have cancer, I think it's very different. So I think in grade one or two, I'm comfortable. As you get to grade three, almost anything, except for maybe like thyroid disorder or something, then I'm, I'm very hesitant. Okay, so it's interesting because you brought up your case. This is a similar case, although it's kind of not in question format. It's kind of a um, what, what in the world was Dr. J. Ram thinking kind of format. <laughs> but 79-year-old male with BCG unresponsive CIS. And, and I have, this is kind of a different discussion, but I don't really love pembrolizumab for this indication. I think with gemcitabine docetaxel and some of the new intravesical agents, and we have a bucket load of clinical trials in this space, I try to steer patients away from pembrolizumab. I think there, there is a, a small benefit, but I think that's modest. That's just my personal opinion. But um, So severe bladder symptoms and intolerance toward further intravesical therapies was kind of the, the thing that pushed me towards giving IO in this situation. Um, and, and I think Dr. Johnson would agree. There's definitely that group of patients in, with this disease that says, gosh, I'm so tired of catheters, and I'm so 100%. tired of BCG. Um, and I think that's where, you know, this, this makes a little bit more sense. Um, but anyhow, this, this group of patients, um, or, or we started pembrolizumab, um, did fine, and then abdominal pain and AST, ALT elevation. The T-billy was actually elevated as well. So we began prednisone, um, and uh, we, we, we saw them back. ALT and AST were now rising. T-billy is higher. And, and honestly, I remember seeing this patient. He was weak, and he was jaundiced. So um, I guess... 
the question becomes, um, so we did the GI consult and, and saw them. Um, is this an inpatient situation or is this an outpatient situation? Do you guys have any thoughts? I mean, I think if you go to that fourth bullet point, if we're at that point, um, I mean, T-belly elevation is the real deal, right? Yeah. That, to me, that's a differentiator where I would think hard about admitting this patient. Just expedite workup, right? Then you can get a hepatology yeah. consult yeah. in a day. Yeah. And you can get a liver biopsy, right? And you can give IV and uh, steroids, et cetera. So, I, you know, again, not being there, it's hard to say, but that th there would be some triggers there that might make me think hard about it. And what's the patient's social situation? Do they live right. 10 minutes away or two hours away? Things like that. Yeah, I, I'd agree. You know, th that's probably the patient that, that I would actually strongly consider bringing in, uh, mainly because when I started out uh, the I.O. program, I was, I didn't have any experts guiding me who are in the area, and I said, well, this, you know, I want this to go smoothly. I know that there are other people in the hospital who are used to dealing with this. Let's just bring them in. Patients appreciate it, uh, and, yeah. and you, you can sleep at night. Yeah, and I think this one was a social situation kind of thing. Um, I think we talked about bringing this patient to the <clears> hospital, and he said, well, I don't feel like I need to go to the hospital, and in the community, we get that a lot, right? Um, I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to do uh, kind of what I think is right. So um, but so we try to manage this as an outpatient. didn't necessarily work that great, but at, at Dr. Rini's case was interesting because this was similar, just a long time of, of steroids, and then I think the message to kind of the group is, there is a toll that chronic long-term steroids take. In urologists, we don't really understand that. We don't see that. I mean, we give, you know, low-dose prednisone with abiraterone, for example. But, um, you know, obviously it's not the same. So you got to start thinking about those other things, ulcer prophylaxis um, from steroids, PCP, you know, pneumonia prophylaxis. Um, and these are things that your multidisciplinary specialist will, will know that you don't know. So um, if you kind of go on this road of long-term steroids, um, and feel free to chime in anyone else who's been in the situation, um, there tends to be other things involved besides just the steroids. Yeah, I think... Um the, the PCP prophylaxis is important. If I have somebody on, it's going to be less than a month. I generally don't worry about it. But as you get into these, you know, four, six, eight plus weeks, uh, then we'll generally do it back, usually just with Bactrim. Agreed. And, uh, and so then we permanently discontinue. Because in theory, this is a grade four um, transaminitis um, with really high uh, LT elevation. And so we discontinued permanently. And alternate um, options were, were continued. So, you know, this is interesting because, again, um, monotherapy is, uh, is, is somewhat rare. Obviously, Dr. Rini can attest that there, there are certainly some situations where they're using monotherapy in some uh, metastatic uh, patients. But the, just putting patients on single-agent monotherapy is a little bit of a different uh, risk profile than, than combination agents. So, um, what you're seeing here is, is that the incidence can vary, and it can vary actually amongst certain types of cancers. And we've heard that you know, maybe NMIBC has a little bit of a different uh, treatment for those patients, may have a, a specific uh, side effect profile. We, we're seeing that also in things like melanoma, um, non-small cell lung cancer. You're seeing certain toxicities emerge. Um, 
PD1, PDL1, those are the those are the ones that that we're mostly dealing with here in the orange and in the green. Um, you can see kind of the distribution of the adverse events um, with most people getting skin, GI, and we'll, we'll look at some of the timings too. But um, common things, you know, we like to say common things are common, and so rash, colitis, um, those are the ones that we're that we're seeing more often. But it's important to understand that that some of these other ones can manifest themselves. Um, onset uh, of IRAEs, we saw a slide very similar to this. Rash usually comes first, um, then comes colitis, um, and then the endocrine abnormalities can come uh, kind of down the road uh, along with the, the, the laboratory abnormalities. So there is kind of a, you know, poor man's predictor of, okay, well, if, there, if something goes wrong within the first, you know, few weeks, maybe it's more likely to be rash. Um, but again, you, you, you don't want to kind of... Uh, completely ignore some of the other things because you can see that. But um, there, again, this is, this, there is some kind of good foundational data here that can help you understand if they come back with a problem, what's most likely. And that can translate into counseling, right, to say, well, okay, the first couple weeks you may notice a rash, um, but you, know, you probably won't notice um, you know, pneumonitis uh, after, the first, uh, after the first infusion. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think this is important. And, you know, doing a lot of clinical trials, I think we, we're, we're kind of used to this, and we have to kind of extrapolate this to patients. But a lot of these patients have a fairly, you know, strict exclusion criteria for, for clinical trials. And, and the, the hallmark of it tends to be autoimmune diseases um, and, and current steroids or autoimmune treatments. Um, and that's uh, expected based on the mechanism of action. So this is a special population. This is a high-risk group. Um, I would strongly advise anyone treating these patients to get in a multidisciplinary forum and potentially even just refer over to medical oncology. They have significantly more expertise with these groups of patients. Um, and then this also helps you align your consultants, right? That was already said, but it, I check a TSH and a cortisol on, on a lot of patients prior to starting just because, you know, I, Sometimes patients don't know, you know, if they have thyroid issues, if they've had a history of thyroid. So it just makes me feel better um, that we're not dealing with something that's brand new or is not established. And if, they, if their TSH is abnormal, I'll loop in an endocrinologist to, to kind of concurrently help me with the patient um, and similar with some of these other things. Um, curious, uh, what do people think about kind of now patients who have autoimmune disease, some of these kind of special populations? Are there groups of patients that you're saying, no, absolutely not, you're, you're not in, a, in, a, in um, uh, immunotherapy canon? I mean, solid organ transplant, I wouldn't, uh, I think to me that's a, an absolute contraindication. The history of autoimmune disease, and there's a emerging literature, the case series and this and that, that you can do that depending on severity, but I, I think for, for this purpose, I mean, I think if you're thinking about doing that, you need to involve a lot of relevant people. <laughs> I wouldn't do that on an island, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't do that, you know, so certainly, you know, for, for folks here. Um, and then some of the, I've, I've not, I don't think I have a patient with HIV on, uh, you know, but I don't think there's an issue. I think I might have, I don't think there's an issue with the medications or anything or, and the other things are sort of just comorbidities that we deal with, you know, in practice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, um, I think the history of autoimmune disease raises, makes me a little bit nervous and I think I monitor a little bit more carefully. Uh, a case that comes to mind is a patient who is not the, who's getting, uh, getting IO therapy, history of vasculitis and cardiac problems, and I was a, a little bit nervous that his vasculitis would flare up again, so we were 
we got medical oncology involved. We had a multidisciplinary meeting. We decided to you know, check CRP, ESR a little bit more closely and uh, keep a close eye on them. Um, transplant, uh, definitely not. I don't think I've had an HIV patient either. Okay, good. So the last part of this, I think, is Dr. Johnson is going to talk a little bit about the multi-D aspect. Um, so uh, Brian and Tom have done a great job of telling us, you know, how do I manage these? How do we identify it? And, and I think I have uh, what amounts to the easy job of how do we operationalize this? And I think this is really an important part. When I started the, our IO program in private practice, I was the only guy who uh, was interested in it. My partner said, you can do it, but we don't want any we don't want to be a part of it. Uh, we're not getting any phone calls. You're taking all of the, handling all the problems. And so I was really, uh, I was really, uh, had this challenge. That, well, well, how am I going to do this? And um, I don't know the best analogy, but I, when I was uh, originally think of, thinking of it, I kind of thought of like, remember Voltron, the characters there, like these like superhero guys, and like you know, uh, separately these these heroes are you know these guys are uh, strong, but like when they all combine, they're like a super team here, and you know I guess you know Marvel characters are probably a good example as well. But I kind of said like I need to assemble my team, right? Um, I can do things. I have certain abilities. I I know I have an area of expertise, but I, I make no claims that I'm the expert in liver function or or. Uh, or kidney function for that matter. And so uh, when I uh, think about how does someone manage these, uh, they really have to surround themselves with their own hand-selected team of champions. Uh, for me in private practice, uh, as Dr. Jaram had alluded to earlier, uh, I had a bunch of people on speed dial. And so I, I set up a transfer agreement with my local hospital to say, well, if I, anyone had a problem, could I just directly admit them uh, and have a hospitalist see them? I, I identified the hospitalist. I said, you know, I might be sending patients your way who've had uh, immunotherapy. Do you feel comfortable managing this? I got my endocrine, my GI. And so I had that. And once you had that safety net, you know, your team supporting you, uh, I felt much more comfortable uh, that I could implement these therapies, uh, identify the adverse reactions, and manage them appropriately. Um, so uh, to that end, here's uh, the first question. Uh, I tried to keep it pretty straightforward so that um, we're not rehashing things, but you know, here, which of the following is not a typical member of a multidisciplinary immunotherapy team? If anyone says urologist, then urologist. You, get, you get kicked out of the room. Um, we walked right into that yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. All right. And so, uh, yeah, so, you know, obviously the urologist, uh, if we implement this, is part of the team. The nurse navigator, I think, plays a great role, and I'll mention sort of the roles that I, I envision people uh, playing in in various multi-D teams, medical oncology, obviously we work very closely with. Um, infusion nurses, I think, are actually extremely important because a lot of these, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot of them, uh, you can get infusion-related reactions, and, and they're also very close to the patient. And so a lot of this is how many touch points do you have with the patient? What level of comfort does the patient have conveying information on about what's going on? And our, in private practice, our infusion nurse would uncover things that 
even to the best of my abilities, I couldn't uncover. You know, I had, uh, I remember a situation where I went to see a patient, got them all set for their iotherapy. The infusion nurse, you know, came back to me five minutes later when I was, you know, writing a note and like, did they tell you about their bleeding toenails? And I'm like, what do you mean? They didn't say anything. And sure enough, I went back and they had some dermatologic problem. And uh, if it wasn't for the infusion nurse, we would have never monitored that. Uh, that person did okay, but they have a special connection. You know, uh, pharmacy benefits manager, you know, there's a lot of uh, work with pharmacy, but uh, a lot of the multidisciplinary team is focused around patient care. So I'd say the pharmacy benefits manager is typically not the member. However, in private practice, the, the benefits manager tends to be the gatekeeper to That's a right. lot of this stuff. So <laughs> right. it, it's, it, is, it is an important part, and it, these are um, high-cost drugs, and for, for those of us in independent group practice, these are buy-and-bill uh, drugs. So that's kind of a different topic, but it is something to, to think about. You need a structure in place for that part, too. Of course, of course. Uh, and so he, here's just some highlights on the workflow. How, how does one go about actually uh, building this program. And so before patients get any uh, immunotherapy, well, we gotta document their underlying conditions. And like I said before, I had a patient who had some history of autoimmune vasculitis and some cardiac history, and I said, is this really the patient uh, that I want to give iotherapy to? Uh, and if so, how am I gonna do this safely and correctly? Uh, we have to look about their history of autoimmune diseases, uh, medication histories. Uh, as some of these patients accumulate this list, sometimes they don't know that they have conditions that might uh, uh, affect their ability to tolerate immunotherapy. Uh, and so um, I think you really have to, some degree, be the first line of defense, uh, look into their history, and really give it an honest assessment as to, is this patient going to benefit from uh, what you're going to give them? And, and as part of that, it's counseling, right? So. Are they gonna, what's the benefit? What's the, the risk? And you have to convey that to the patient when you're talking to them about do they want to undergo this therapy? Certainly in the advanced you know, metastatic setting, uh, maybe they don't have as much of a choice as the adjuvant setting. Uh, reproductive status, breastfeeding status. We know that based on the mechanism of action, these iotherapies uh, can have some potential toxicities and so we need to counsel patients uh, women who are of reproductive age who are breastfeeding uh, appropriately about that and uh, each drug has their own set of guidelines that you can refer to about what the appropriate recommendations are. Uh, wallet cards and other identification. I don't know if you guys have experience with this. I've, I've had a number of uh, different uh, approaches to it. Do we give them a wallet card which says I'm on a therapy and if so which one? Uh, some of the more tech savvy people have put it into their phones with their medical IDs and, and whatnot that they carry on. I don't know if you guys have any strategies or if you guys We like just have, we have a wallet card. Yeah. 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 And does it just say what therapy they're on? It just says immune therapy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not specific. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think that just the, the fundamental point is critical because, again, in, in the community you're dealing with oftentimes rural patients. They may go to smaller facilities first. I, I've kind of always heard the story and been somewhat scared of the, of the patient that looks like they have pneumonia um, and, and they just didn't tell the provider that they've been on uh, IO therapies and they have pneumonitis and they're sent home with antibiotics. And, and I, you know, it may be an oversimplification, but I, I think it's really important that the patient understands what they're on and, and, and be, is able to communicate that with the provider. Yeah. And so that's what we do prior to starting any therapy. 
a very detailed health assessment, really identifying uh, is this the right patient to get the therapy, uh, and what are my levels of suspicion, and when should I potentially intervene. Uh, that's done largely by the provider. So, uh, you know, that's, that's me looking through the records, me consulting with the medical oncologist, any other specialist to get the workup to know that we're safe to proceed. Um, uh, the next is really, uh, what do we do in terms of patient instruction? So we, we notify the healthcare providers of any new signs or symptoms, having, having the primary care provider, having any other specialist involved, very helpful. Um, and, uh, and so patients have to let us know what's going on with them. And this is where uh, I think the infusion nurse, your nurse navigator, uh, the, front, the person who checks in the patient, all have a very vital role, um, uh, especially when you're starting out with these programs, because you really don't want to overlook anything. You're not I was not exactly sure what I was looking for, and so I just tried to make sure as many people asked the patient how things were going and what, uh, if they had any new symptoms. Um, uh, as has been alluded to in the past, there, there's no symptom or sign too small to be to be mentioned. I think especially as people are starting up with these programs, it's a good idea just to document every little potential concern they have. And some of these turn out to be nothing. Uh, some of them turn out to be, uh, be, be something and warrant evaluation. But you have to get in the process of being very diligent uh, and thorough with your workup. Uh, symptoms should be monitored for one year after completion. So. Uh, when we give this to patients, it's important to tell them, just as we've looked at sort of the, the kinetics of these adverse reactions, that just because you're not getting an infusion doesn't mean you can't have a reaction. Uh, and even when you're done with therapy, you still have to look out for them. So uh, letting patients know that this is a process uh, and, and they're an active participant is critical. What's the latest you've ever seen an IOTOX after you've, they've been off drug? I don't know. I mean, again, I'm mostly treating people in the advanced setting, so it's a little bit different, but it definitely can happen, but it's not, it's not very common at all. So I don't, but I've heard up, I've heard up to a year or yeah. so, but I think it's uncommon. I mean, is it safe to say that if someone cruises through a year of adjuvant Pembro and they really don't have any issues, and, which is, you know, I would say somewhat common, that the, the counseling should be, well, something may happen, but it's yeah. very unlikely. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you're going to see them every three or four months for scans anyway, so. Yeah. Tom, how about you? Have you seen people in after therapy is complete have a new No, I mean, I've seen the literature and the data that, you know, you can, they can have kind of these unpredictable side effects afterwards, but I mean, I, I haven't seen it. Yeah, neither have I. Uh, and lastly, in this workflow is how do we manage uh, toxicity, and we've been uh, been over this, so I'm not going to go into it in all that much detail, but some of the things that weren't mentioned, uh, we re review medications for drug-drug interactions. So when a patient comes in, we're trying to treat them, it's really important to get a very thorough health assessment, and so looking for any possible uh, changes is important. Um, as, as both speakers have presented before, uh, the treatment really depends on the severity of the adverse reaction, and so we have to uh, we have to do a good job of assessing uh, the severity of it before we make that treatment decision. Like I said, I like the ASCO guidelines, a set of tables with dermatitis. Here are the criteria. 
here's what you're going to do for each one. And so I, I quite literally have it on my phone. I hand it out to, to the people in the team and say, this is what I think we're going to follow. Um, I don't know what other people do, but having a, a good game plan, I think, puts everyone uh, at ease that no matter what happens, we know what to do. Okay. Um, questions to ask uh, to ask patients, uh, and so this is, you know, when when we're um, the patient themselves is the centerpiece of this, and so everything has to uh, has to revolve around them. And part of that is, well, uh, have you ever received uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, immunotherapy? Um, we know these can uh, occur after, and so. Like I said, very important to allow patients to know that even when they're done with therapy, they may experience some of these side effects. Um, wallet cards, uh, I think if you just look for it online, I bet you you could do it. I, I tried doing wallet cards. I didn't find all that much success on it. Um, we toyed with the idea of having little bracelets uh, that said you're on immunotherapy, like a medical ID bracelet. Um, but I think if we stress, in my experience, if we were stressed to alert providers whenever there was a, uh, to mention that patients were on immunotherapy, I thought we had a pretty good response that patients really uh, reported that as soon as they had, they spoke to another member of their care team. Uh, autoimmune conditions, as you have heard, can uh, complicate matters. Um, and so it's really important that when we talk to patients, assess them, that uh, that we're aware of the severity, uh, what they've had before, and how it uh, may affect their future treatment. So uh, here's a case. Uh, I tried to select some cases that were a little bit uh, off the wall just because uh, we've been through some of the more common ones. And so um, this is an 81-year-old man. He has uh, CKD, panurothelial disease, right? He has some comorbidities. Spinal stenosis, osteoarthritis, hyperlipidemia, AFib, CKD. Um, in my mind, none of those really raise, I mean, the CKD, obviously, but Tom, any of these comorbidities raise any red flags to you? The history of AFib, does that ever make you? What's um, the, um, I guess I would just ask, what are you treating him for eventually? I think you'll probably get to it here. Is it, is it BCG unresponsive disease? Yeah, or is yeah. it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is kind of some of that art of medicine stuff that we talked about. I, I personally just, I, I really reserve um, IO in that indication for patients who just don't have any other options. Yeah. So they, they really don't want gemdosi. There's no trial that we can get them on. Um, you know, as you know, there's going to be a flurry of new indications over the next 12 months um, in this exact situation. So. I tend to really reserve IO, even in healthy patients, honestly. Um, the example I gave was a patient who was catheter uh, intolerant. So I, I think that that could be a role, but honestly, someone like this, I would look at all of this and say probably not. But sure. I certainly yeah. understand, um, you know, that if there's really not much there, or the patient comes in and they're really excited and they understand the, the side effect profile. That yeah. Yeah. You can let it go. Can yeah. let and, it th and that's sort of my thought. I saw all these comorbidities. I'm like, oh, this spinal stenosis, is that going to somehow be affected by any therapies? And ultimately, we proceeded with this. So their history is as follows. You know, uh, back in 2018, they underwent a, a left nephew. They had 
PTA disease throughout the, the left upper tract. Ultimately, uh, they recurred in their bladder. It was low-grade, non-invasive. Uh, given, uh, after a discussion, they underwent some BCG. Uh, they underwent maintenance, or induction and maintenance, and then high-grade disease was found. Um, and then in this workup, we found that they had multifocal high-grade in the upper tract, uh, and so, and no disease elsewhere, so hopefully localized uh, to the urinary tract. Um, we brought this patient to our multidisciplinary uh, team and said, well, what should we do? Um, and uh, after that discussion, uh, which, uh, you know, the medical oncologists actually were very, very helpful at weighing in, they said, well, you know, off-label Pembro might be reasonable, and so counseled the patient appropriately, uh, and ultimately gave it to him. Uh, 12, cycle number 12, the patient reports fatigue and a decreased appetite. Uh, these are, uh, I think, you know, uh, teased out by our, our nursing staff. And as we did with all of our infusions, we checked some thyroid functions and we saw that uh, the TSH was uh, slowly creeping up. I think at the time of, uh, previously it was six, and then we monitored at 13. Uh, we said, well, you know, I, I don't know exactly what to do. Let's check it a week later, and I think it was 31. Um, and so the question is, well, patient on Pembro for quite a while, um, uh, what would we do in this setting? So we can stop the therapy, we can give steroids, we can give thyroid replacement. What, what do you think is the best? You know, obviously not the most straightforward case. Maybe I'll ask you guys, what would you do? So, you know, I mean, generally for hypothyroidism, I would just continue immune therapy and replace. And I, I agree, minor TSH elevations, I don't really do much about yeah. and observe them because you see them all the time. And, you know, it's just yet another pill that this patient has to take every day. Um, I guess in this, because of the setting in which this patient's getting it, it's kind of like backing up and saying, are we going to continue Pembro forever here? Or, you know, that, that's sort of what I would start thinking about. Yeah. You're lucky yeah. it was just thyroid, yeah. you know, but yeah. Um, yeah. again, given their, you know, 80 plus and, and some frailty, I'd be concerned that if this patient got colitis or something, their ability to withstand that is, is low. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think um, I'm not a huge fan of IO for upper tract disease. I think there's some data that that, um, you know, uh, especially in the Nevo data, that the adjuvant for upper tract it really didn't have much of a benefit. I think the diseases are a little bit different. But I, listen, I, I think the point's a good one, is, especially in the community. You're kind of hamstrung with some of these, especially these urothelial patients who are older. Um, you can't give them platinum. You, you know, you don't want to do something that's super morbid. And so sometimes this is like a, okay, well, can we punt a little bit? Can we just kick this down the road a little bit? So I, I think it's interesting, and I've definitely seen this um, kind of approach for patients who maybe are muscle invasive, and you don't want to do a whole lot and kind of keep them going. So, but I, but I agree. I think in this situation, I think you're like, okay, well, we tried it. This didn't go very well. Um, let's give them thyroid replacement, and I'd probably stop, honestly. Yeah. Just for my own uh, discussion purposes, Tom, would you treat this patient in the community setting? Or would you refer to medical oncology? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's tough because it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a weird case, right? Yeah. So he's got bilateral, upper tract, high-grade disease. Um, we don't 
you know, that's not really an indication for any systemic therapy um, uh, right now, unless you can prove that he's got node positive disease or he's, he, you know, he, he's really got locally advanced disease. So I've had a, I have had a few of these patients. Um, I think that it's, it's a hodgepodge. I think sometimes you try to clear patients out, make sure they're not obstructed. Sometimes they live with a stent and I, I endoscopically manage them, you know, every three to four months. There are there is some emerging data that maybe uh, mitogel upper tract right uh, yeah. uh, gel mito may be effective although it's it's indicated for low grade disease um, I don't think that's wrong uh, and I've actually even had a patient where I've given IO and done gel mito um, telling the because the patient couldn't get an free redirectomy um, and and you know we're just trying to and again multi D consultation talking to pa- people and definitely telling the patient listen here's where we're at. You know, we can't do aggressive surgery on you. This may work, it may not. We've got a short leash to pull it off, um, and let's go from there. But I, I probably would not put this patient on IO monotherapy. Yeah, yeah. You know, this this was a patient that uh, was seen at Washington University in the academic setting, and I thought, well, is this someone I'd treat out in the community? And uh, you know. I, I agree with that discussion. It may not be appropriate, but I think, you know, I still would have gone through the same process, you know, in terms of like setting up the multi-D, trying to make sure you go through all the right steps. I think if I had done this in the community versus in an academic environment, the end result would probably be the same. I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily shy away from uh, treating in the community, but I would want to make sure that all team members bought in, that we had discussions with the I think it just makes you feel better. I mean, I've had plenty of 83-year-olds with muscle invasive disease that can't get a cystectomy, and we send them to medical oncology, and sometimes medical oncologists will put them on checkpoints. Um, and it's kind of off-label, but I think that's part of it, is, is just having this discussion. Maybe they get a little bit of RT to the bladder, and they're on a systemic agent. It's just a better call than doing it by yourself and, and kind of saying, hey, Let's just see where this goes, because again, this is kind of a multi-D type of disease. I don't know if Dr. Rini has any thoughts on kind of these off-label types of situations. Yeah, I mean, I end up sort of piecing it together, right, when they can't do this and they can't do that, and so you do things that, that you know, mm-hmm. are a little outside the box, but, um, but I think it's fine. Obviously, you're trying to do no harm to patients, but yet control their disease. I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so the endocrinopathies, um, you know, it, from a urologist standpoint, we give a lot of the PD-1, PDL one therapies, not quite so much the uh, CTLA-4s. Um, but if we look at these, uh, you can see the rates of the various endocrinopathies in this graph here with hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, uh, and hypophysitis. Um, and you see that when you start giving these uh, in combination, that the number of, or the incidence of these uh, endocrinopathies start to increase. And so just something to keep in mind that as you start adding on therapies, you might have to start counseling patients about uh, increased rate of toxicities and as well monitoring a little bit closer. So uh, as this slide will show, you know, we monitor the TSH, the cortisol level, um, but with a lot of these endocrinopathies, the symptoms are pretty nonspecific, and and so it's really important, again, to get as many touch points on the patient as you can. Uh, And with the endocrine, uh, as our team was uh, mentioning, it's one of the adverse events where we don't necessarily have to discontinue therapy. We don't have to give, uh, necessarily give uh, uh, steroids. We have to kind of gauge what's 
how, how severe it is, what their side effects are, and, and base our therapy based on that. Um, patients who have uh, diabetes, on the other hand, who get type 1 diabetes uh, because of pancreatic involvement, potentially life-threatening, they're going to need long-term insulin therapy essentially indefinitely. Uh, we need to get those patients in. We need to get them established with an endocrinologist as soon as possible. Uh, and so whenever we're monitoring these, very important that we not only say, you know, what's, what type of uh, adverse event they have, but also what's the long-term outlook for, for that treatment. Is it something where they're going to have, we're just going to monitor for a couple weeks and lay low? Do they need an evaluation right away? You know, examples of immediate ones, anyone with a vision change automatically send them, you know, whether or not I, I suspect it's immune-mediated or not, if they say that there's, they're having some change in their vision, I send them to ophthalmology just to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Um, changes in blood sugar, send them to an endocrinologist. It's, it's just important to me to make sure that we monitor those closely. Uh, I think this is my second and, and of two cases, uh, and again, just highlight some of uh, the more odd ones that I've encountered. So 67-year-old man with high-risk prostate cancer and essentially no more, no comorbidities. He's you're the guy that you want to treat for prostate cancer. Uh, counseled. Uh, he got his treatment before or his, his, um, his uh, uh, surgery before I showed up at Washington University, but he had grade group 5 disease. His PSA was 6. Um, he had his prostatectomy in 2017. Uh, T2C, node negative, negative metastatic workup by conventional imaging as of 2017. Uh, did well for a year. Functionally, he did fine in his recovery, but his PSA came back at 2.1, approximately one year from surgery. Did the metastatic workup, bone scan in his left scapula, had uh, lesion-targeted disease, placed on radiation, got radiation placed on androgen deprivation. PSA went down, stayed down for two years, and at that point he's like, guys, I'm miserable. Can I come off of this ADT? Um, careful discussion, came off of ADT. Year later, PSA comes back. 1.2, now has a, a lesion in his rib. We restarted uh, androgen deprivation in him. Uh, PSA drops, so previously 1.2, now it's 0.25. Um, one year later, PSA starts to climb again. So now, uh, castrate-resistant disease, uh, metastatic, essentially asymptomatic. He undergoes Provenge. PSA slowly starts to rise. And so, you know, this is now five years later. So he's in his early 70s, uh, starts to rise. Um, and when he was seen late last year, his PSA was 4.7, and we said, look, it's, it's continuing to rise. What can we offer you? Um, let's get you on a trial. And so being at the academic institution, he was enrolled in a medical oncology trial, which involved a DNA vaccine plus Pembro. Uh, he got one dose, and two weeks afterwards, uh, this is how he showed up. And um, so I, I was in clinic with my medical oncologist, and. Uh, he pulled me out to, to evaluate this, and I'm like, I've never seen any real neurologic problems, but um, he had this left eye edema, uh, some ptosis. He was seen just fine. He didn't think much of it, but um, we uh, uh, had looked back at his, um, uh, we said, well, this needs to be evaluated. Let's get some work up on you, and, and sure enough, 
Uh, previously, his liver enzymes were normal, and now they started to rise, and we are we checking on this uh, uh, weekly. And so um, ophthalmology was involved, and they said, well, uh, possible myasthenia gravis. Um, this was all done, this, the workup from his, you know, uh, initial, initial presenting symptom to the ophthalmology uh, consultation was in a matter of days, if I remember correctly. But they said, well, possible myasthenia gravis. Um, and they, they had said, well, let's give him some uh, prednisone. Uh, his lab values started uh, normalizing. He, we got a bunch of antibody testing, again, done through uh, this multidisciplinary team. Everything was negative. MRI was negative. Uh, and his PSA uh, actually started to uh, decrease. This was uh, essentially in just a few months ago, and I, I haven't updated to figure out what his latest PSA is. But uh, the point was that when the guy showed up with this relatively rare um, adverse event, I wasn't sure whether or not it was trial-related, immuno- uh, or PEMBRO-related, but we had a workup in place. We knew what we were doing um, because we were monitoring routine labs. We had our team on standby. Um, we had, I, we admitted him to the hospital. We had a guy who knows how to manage uh, immune-related uh, ophthalmologic concerns, and so uh, quickly able to uh, work this up. I don't know, Tom, if you've ever seen any neurologic problems with iotherapy. This was the first that I was like, well, this is something a little bit odd. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, like I said, I think this is just behooves the, the, the notion of um, if something new has happened after the onset of, of therapy, it's most likely related to, to IO. Um, but it, this is an interesting situation because you have a, another uh, agent that you're mm -hmm. giving the patient, and so um, you have to kind of exclude. But Really, I mean, there, there's no harm in sometimes starting steroids. I, obviously, you don't want to commit them to long-term steroids, or getting multi-D collaboration and getting the um, the specialists on board to weigh in on it. But um, yeah, this this is something a little bit scary. And, and again, it's this happens, and, and you have to if you're going to give this stuff, you have to be able to understand. Okay, well, what am I going to do if I see this person in the office? Um, because sending this person home and saying, hey, I think you're going to be okay, or I think we'll give you a couple weeks of steroids and we'll, we'll see what happens, is not going to uh, be, uh, I think, uh, appropriate. I think you have to take some of these rare ones a little bit more seriously because there's data that says that the rarer side effects can progress a little bit quicker, probably that they're underdiagnosed, underdetected. Um, and, and so some of these ones that are, you know, we're so used to rash and dry cough and thyroid, um, and we know how to manage those, but but for these, I, I think you have to have really a high antenna about um, getting them in to see somebody soon. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think uh, to your point, uh, the reason why I like this was because we had this workflow in place. You know, how do, how do you treat a patient, um, whether or not they have uh, a cough or a rash or, you know, drooping of their left eye, I think you should approach it with the same mindset of, well, we got to screen for symptoms. When we do have a symptom, we have to assess how severe it is. And based on the severity, we need to have a plan already in place on how we're going to treat that. Uh, just to talk about myasthenia gravis as an adverse event, obviously uh, rare, but history of, of weakness that's fluctuating, worsening over the course of a day. Um, Greater than 50% may have some ocular uh, muscle dysfunction. Um, 
patients can have different symptoms. Uh, four weeks or so after initiation, obviously in ours it was just a couple of weeks after the first dose. Uh, the testing, this is, you know, if I were doing this on my own, I would have no idea what to test for, but because we had this team uh, getting an EMG, um, acetylcholine receptor, uh, testing anti-striated muscle antibodies in the blood. You know, I've never ordered these in my life, but uh, like I was talking about how like each member of this team has their own superpower, like we have a guy who said like, yep, this is exactly what you order. And so it took a lot of the anxiety off of, off of me uh, because I knew that there was someone who knew how to, how to handle this. So treatment, admission to the hospital, make sure that there's no medicines that are gonna worsen uh, the myasthenia gravis, things like beta blockers, fluoroquinolones, uh, and the treatment, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors um, for milder cases, steroids for more severe cases, uh, and there is a mortality rate associated with it. So uh, ultimately when this patient got their workup, it was unclear. Uh, everyone was still debating, was this really myasthenia gravis? Um, because all these tests were coming back negative, uh, but uh, they responded uh, to what we were giving them, uh, and ultimately they the swelling went down, function re returned, and, and uh, the patient was no worse for wear. So we've talked about the guidelines a little bit before, um, but there's a number of different guidelines, and when you're trying to operationalize this, I think the, the key is you pick one, and you stick with it, uh, and, and uh, so that there's a common uh, playbook across your team. Um, there's benefits. Uh, for you, for the community, for the patient when you develop this team. So I listed just a couple here. Uh, interdisciplinary communication and education. As you know, treatments in cancers uh, in urology are becoming more and more multimodal earlier and earlier in the disease space. And so this types of, these types of communications are very important um, to let all your team members know what you're doing uh, and just to, to foster these good relationships. We know that patients uh, are appreciated. When you have a lot of nurses who care, front desk staff, medical oncologists, uh, who are all communicating with each other and with the patient, it leads to patients feeling that they're being managed correctly, uh, that, there's a, that they're managed safely, uh, and so I think the patient experience in, uh, has been really positive when patients know that there's a whole team that's, that's looking after them. Uh, and importantly, um, these, these safety nets, these multidisciplinary teams are not new. Uh, they exist in the community already. Uh, because immunotherapy has been given by the medical oncology community for quite some time, uh, they have their endocrinologists, they have their dermatologists, and, and so um, we just have to make those connections. And so. Uh, it's not as if you have to start from square one, you just have to figure out uh, who the people are who are used to treating uh, patients who have received immunotherapy and linking them all together. When I did this in private practice, I made a lot of connections. I found the endocrinologist and they said, well, yep, this is the GI guy who we usually use as well. And so uh, it, was, it was very nice because you didn't have to hand select everyone, you just, they already had that team already coexisting.
Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that a lot of this in private practice um, stems from, I think, having a high-impact GU multidisciplinary tumor board. Um, I think a lot of our facilities have tumor boards, um, but I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think they're those are the best forums because they're they're presenting mostly colon and melanoma and breast. And so in my experience, I kind of pivoted away from a hospital-based tumor board and kind of focused on people who are interested in GU. And now we do a weekly uh, virtual tumor board um, with people who are really interested in, in GU. And what that kind of begets is they're experts as well. So the, the medical oncologist will say, hey, here's who I use for my um, uh, GI consultations, hepatology, endocrine, and, and those people essentially become uh, part of your Rolodex as well. So um, I think that this starts personally with, with a really uh, good and, and uh, kind of well-planned. And in academics, it's a little bit different. I think you have those people coming into the table already, but I think in the community, I think you've got to try to find people who are really interested in GU and kind of work forward. So, um these two columns, I think, are very important. So on the left, it's who are the people that we should be engaging in our, in our multidisciplinary uh, team? Um, and primary care providers, obviously important. The emergency department, right? These are the patients. You send them to the emergency department. Uh, they need to know uh, how to manage patients who are having uh, adverse events. The hospitalists obviously may be admitting your, your, uh, your patients. Um, IO champions are very important, like uh, Dr. Jaram was saying. I, this isn't for everyone, and so it's important that you identify someone in your group who wants to uh, take this on. And it's not uh, a small undertaking, and, and I think you have to take it seriously. Having mid-level providers is, is key, and uh, the pharmacists are also exceedingly helpful. And how do we reach out to them? Well. Um, the, the column on the right has this, so education outreach, very important. Uh, Dr. Jaram was mentioning tumor boards. Um, I've given a similar talk, talk at uh, Grand Rounds to, um, to the urologists. Uh, I wouldn't mind doing it to our emergency medicine doctors. Um, having an IR tox team, uh, personally we haven't set that up at Washington University, but uh, it makes a lot of sense and I've heard that it's uh, uh, successful at other institutions. Having a group of people, just your go team, patient comes in with uh, an adverse event, uh, we know what to do and here's the, here's the list of people who are skilled, qualified, interested in helping. Um, how do we do this? This is all cyclic and again, the patient should probably be in the center of this, but if we start at the top, our goal really is to prevent these adverse uh, events and so the only way we can do that is to understand what they might be and to anticipate them. Early identification, appropriate treatment, knowing what to do and what not to do, and monitor them throughout. Uh, and as the team builds more and more experience, they get more and more insight into what to expect and how to manage it. And I think every institution is a little different. I'm sure Dr. J. Ram's team works a little bit different from my team. My team at Washington University works a little bit different from my team in Oregon. Uh, people have different roles, people feel comfortable doing different things, but uh, regardless, you have that team in place. Um, technology is our friend, and uh, uh, in private practice, we used to do a lot of phone-based care, and so uh, we had, we called the patient, 
before their infusion to make sure everything was okay. We got the laboratory testing. We infused them. We monitored them. Day after we called them, um, uh, a week later we typically uh, reached out to them just because we wanted to be very, very careful. Uh, nowadays, we, I may not feel the need to monitor them quite as closely, but uh, that depends on your level of, of comfort. Um, uh, virtual visits with telemedicine is very helpful. You know, patients say, well, I have a rash. Um, well, maybe we can just FaceTime and look at it right now. Is this something, how, how bad is this? And so I think you need to figure out whatever technology um, you have, figure out how to leverage it to your abilities. And obviously, you know, bladder cancer patients, maybe an older population, may not be as tech savvy, um, but you have to gauge that and, and have these tools at your disposal. Um, so uh, here's a workflow at the bottom, you know, your patient calls, uh, they have diarrhea, well, the triage nurse is notified, and then she tri uh, the triage nurse uh, uh, triages the clinical concern, they ask a bunch of these um, uh, specific symptoms, questions that, that we provide the triage nurse, uh, as well as additional IO-specific uh, questions, and so uh, educating your team as to how to manage this saves you a lot of work. So you're not just getting the phone call, patient has diarrhea, what should we do? And you're having to start from square one. You can get a report saying, well, uh, your patient has diarrhea, it started this long ago, here's how many episodes, um, do they have anyone sick? And you can really uh, cut down your workflow, make it a very, uh, very quick decision. And so the take-home points. Um, and afterwards, we have a little bit of time. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Jerem, as well as myself, would be happy to answer questions. But uh, immunotherapies are here to stay, and they're going to be increasingly utilized in urologic cancers earlier in the disease space uh, through a variety of ways. Um, and so uh, we have to get used to them. Uh, there's never going to be a treatment that doesn't have side effects, and so we need to accept that they will occur. And if you want to give these therapies, you have to understand that you're going to be dealing with them. Um, we know that our job is to keep patients safe, uh, and safety is optimized when we identify these early, uh, treat them in a timely way, bring in the experts that we need, realizing that urologists uh, aren't experts in all of these areas. Um, when we, have, we need overlapping systems to prevent, anticipate, identify, and treat these to ensure the care is appropriate, uh, both from our perspective as well as the patient's uh, assessment of their care. Um, and there are multiple resources that we can use to assist urologists uh, in how to manage these. And so we just have to really reach out and, and leverage what's already out there. I think that was the... Yeah, so I think in, um, that's pretty much it that we had. We, you know, we tried to kind of cover a little bit uh, of everything in terms of, you know, the side effects, where they come from, how to manage them, and then kind of what the overall approach should be. And, um, you know, we're happy to take questions kind of here or, or kind of um, aside uh, after the program, but um, I appreciate kind of people coming, and, and I know there are some people watching this on live stream as well. Um, and I think I just had to check the app to make sure there were no live stream questions. That was one thing that I was told to do. Um, but if, if anyone has any questions, they feel free to shout it out. Um, but otherwise, we're happy to stay around afterwards and, and chat. So thanks for everyone's time and attention. Thank you.